<laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Lynn, for inviting me. It's really nice to be back here. Uh, I don't know if you appreciate what an incredible facility you have here. Uh, I travel all over the country and, you know, some places in Europe, and this place is amazing. You have so much going on here. You have such great teachers, and uh, it's really a privilege to get a chance to teach here. So, thank you. Thus have I heard, two and a half thousand years ago in northern India, there lived a young man of the Gotama clan. We don't actually know his first name. He's usually called Siddhartha Gotama, but the name Siddhartha only shows up in the literature about 400 years after his death. It means the accomplished one. Um, we could refer to him as Mr. Gotama, but eh. Since we're all familiar with Siddhartha Gotama, then we can use that name. When he was 29 years old, Siddhartha Gotama left his very prominent family amongst the Sakyans in the foothills of the Himalayas and headed off to seek his spiritual fortune. India at that time had had an agricultural revolution that provided a surplus. Not everybody had to be farming in order to grow enough food to feed everybody. This surplus led to being able to support full-time spiritual seekers who would gain the food they needed by going on alms round. The surplus also supported uh, standing armies. Uh, you win some, you lose some. So Siddhartha Gotama left his home and headed east and a bit south to the land of the Kalamas. And there he studied with the teacher Alara Kalama. And he was quite a good student. He quickly learned Alara Kalama's doctrine and his meditation practice. That meditation practice culminated in what we call the seventh jhana, the realm of no-thingness. Laura Kalama was so impressed with Siddhartha Gotama, he said to him, Come, let us lead this group together. But you see, Siddhartha Gotama had left his homeland because he was seeking some way out of dukkha. Do you know the word dukkha? It often gets translated as suffering. Uh, better is unsatisfactoriness. Uh, I've seen it translated as stress. Um, my favorite translation actually is bummer. <laughs> okay, a bummer is something that bums you out. Okay, and it's you getting bummed out. It's not actually out there in the thing, and right? it's your reaction to the thing. And so Siddhartha Gotama left home seeking an end of getting bummed out. Now, it's true, uh, all suffering would be dukkha, all unsatisfactoriness would be dukkha, but perhaps the most, the broadest definition would be basically that, not, that everything is not a source of lasting happiness, okay? It's not ultimately satisfying. 
So Siddhartha Gautama was seeking an end to dukkha. I'm just going to leave it untranslated since we don't really have a good English word as much as I like bummer. And so all he'd learned was seven jhanas, so he left. And he continued on further east and south to the kingdom of Magadha. And there he studied with the teacher Udaka Ramaputta, Udaka the son of Rama. And he learned Rama's doctrine and Rama's meditation practice, which culminated in the eighth jhana, the realm of neither perception nor non-perception. Nudaka was very impressed, and he said, you know Rama's teachings as well as he did. Come, you should lead this group. But Siddhartha Gautama had only learned eight jhanas, not the end of dukkha, so he left. And then he spent an extended period of time practicing austerities. One of the practices was the breathless meditation, meaning that he held his breath for as long as he could over and over and over again. And what he discovered was that if you hold your breath over and over again for a long time, you get very serious headaches, but no end of dukkha. So then he began practicing the austerity of eating only a small amount of food until he was eating one grain of rice a day. And what he discovered was that if you eat one grain of rice a day for an extended period of time, you eventually develop the ability to fall over unexpectedly. He was so weak that, yeah, he would just fall down. After six years from the time he left home, he realized that none of the practices he had done were actually leading him to the end of dukkha. And he began wondering, what else could he do? What else would there possibly be? What other practice could he undertake? At that point, he remembered an incident from his childhood. It says his father was working, and Siddhartha Gotama was sitting under a rose apple tree and fell into what we call the first jhana. And now some quarter century later, he's reflecting back on this experience, and he wonders, why should I be afraid of the pleasure that comes from these jhanas? You see, he had been indulging in pleasure while he was living at home, and now he had been indulging in the opposite extreme of pain, suffering, dukkha, could it be possible that the pleasure of the jhanas was actually useful on the spiritual path? That it was not a hindrance? It had nothing to do with sensuality. It was a, a pure form of pleasure. The more he thought about it, the more he decided, yes, these jhanas are the way to awakening. But he also realized that in his seriously emaciated state, he was not fit for doing any sort of spiritual practice. So he began eating solid food. Now at that time, there were five other ascetics practicing with him, kind of looking up to this guy, figured if he learns something, he'll tell us. And when they saw that he had started eating solid food, they thought he had given up the spiritual path, that he had returned to the life of luxury. And so they left in disgust. 
But Siddhartha Gautama hadn't given up the spiritual path. He was just trying to find something that worked. He spent some time, we don't know how long, I would guess probably several months, regaining his strength. And then according to some of the discourses that we have, some of the suttas, one night he sat down under a tree with the determination to sit there until he figured it out or the flesh rotted from his bones. He began that night of meditation by stepping through the jhanas. One, two, three, four. And then with his mind concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, he directed and inclined it to remembering past lives. That was the first watch of the night. In the second watch of the night, with his mind still concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, he directed and inclined it to seeing beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. And then in the third watch of the night, with his mind still concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, he directed and inclined it to investigating how one thing arises dependent on another. And by the time the sun came up the next morning, he was awake. He was a changed man. He was the Buddha. He spent the next seven weeks in the vicinity of the Bodhi tree, the first week just enjoying the bliss of awakening, and then wondering, could he teach what he had found to others? It was very subtle. It was not something that was easy to see. It could not be understood by intellectual reasoning. It could only be experienced by the wise. He thought, this generation is addicted to their lifestyle. They're caught up in enjoying their lifestyle. People addicted to their lifestyle aren't going to be able to understand what I've come to understand. If I tried to teach this and nobody understood, it would be wearying and vexing. Now, the suttas tell us at that point, one of the highest of the Brahma gods, realizing that the newly awakened Buddha was disinclined to teach, as quickly as a strong man could extend his arm or draw it back, disappeared from the highest of the heavens, reappeared on earth, and got down on bended knee before the Buddha, put his hands together in reverential salutation, and begged him to teach for the benefit of gods and humans. He said, there are some in this world who have little dust in their eyes. They can understand what you have come to understand. And so the Buddha, with the eye of a Buddha, looked around the world and he could see those with much dust in their eye and middling amounts of dust in their eyes and a few with little dust in their eyes. And he thought perhaps he should at least try and teach them. And then that Brahma God, upon realizing that the newly awakened Buddha was inclined to teach, as quickly as a strong man could extend his arm or draw it back, 
disappeared from the human realm and reappeared in the highest of the heavens. The Buddha thought, now who should I teach? Who has little dust in their eyes? He thought about his first teacher, Alara Kalama. He certainly had little dust in his eyes, but he had also recently died. And then he thought about his second teacher, Udaka Ramaputta. He had little dust in his eyes, but he too had recently died. And then the Buddha thought about his five friends, the ones who had left because, yeah, they thought he'd given up the spiritual path. And he thought, they have a little dust in their eyes. Perhaps I should try and teach them. And then with his power of the Buddha eye, he surveyed the world, and he could see that they were living in the deer park at Isipatana, outside the, city of, the ta- village of Sarnath, which was near the great city of Varanasi. And so he set out to walk in that direction. Now it says along the way he encountered an Ajivaka, someone from one of the other spiritual traditions at that time, who was very struck by the Buddha's countenance. This Ajivaka said, Who are you? You you don't look like other men. You have an amazing countenance. Who is your teacher? And the Buddha said, I have no teacher. I'm awake. And that Ajivaka said, well, good for you, and passed by on the other side. The Buddha's first attempt at teaching didn't go over real well. But he persisted, and he kept heading west, and eventually he arrived at the deer park, and his friends saw him coming in the distance. Hey, hey, look, it's Sid the Slacker. We'll let him sit with us, but, uh, you know, we won't show him any reverence or anything. But when he came near, one of them got up, to take his robe and bowl, and another prepared a seat for him to sit on, and another prepared water for him to wash his feet. And after he had sat down and washed his feet, he said, well, guys, I figured it out. And they laughed, and they said, you couldn't have figured anything out. We saw you. You were eaten. You gave up the spiritual path. And he said, no, no, I didn't give up the spiritual path. I figured it out. And they said, you couldn't have. You returned to the life of luxury. There's no way you could have figured it out. He said, no, I didn't return to the life of luxury. I was just trying to find something that worked. Listen, have I ever told you before that I figured it out? They had to agree that no, he'd never claimed before. So they agreed to listen to what he had to say. And he taught them what we know as the first sermon the Dhamma Chakra Pavadana Sutta, the discourse setting in motion the wheel of Dhamma. It's a discourse on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Now the first of these Four Noble Truths, well actually the term Noble Truths is a literal translation of the Pali, but it's not that the truths are noble. It's that if you understand the truths, that can be ennobling. So actually, we could say the four ennobling truths and the ennobling eightfold path. In other words, this is something that, if you actually practice it, will ennoble you, will allow you to wake up. And he said to, I'm going to use noble truths because, yeah, it's probably what you're familiar with, but keep in mind, it's really about 
that they ennoble you rather than the truths that are noble. So, this first noble truth, <clears throat> probably best stated as dukkha happens. They used to put that on bumper stickers. Well, they used a four-letter Anglo-Saxon word, but it's the same idea. Things go wrong. Life isn't perfect. Um, modern science has discovered this. Uh, it teaches, uh, there's a teaching on entropy. Entropy is the tendency of things to go from a state of order to disorder. You might have noticed this happen in your life. You clean your home, and everything looks really great, and two weeks later, somebody's messed it up. It obviously wasn't you, but somebody's made a mess, right? There's stuff laying everywhere, and who put the dust in here? And, and it happens to your car. I mean, you buy a brand new car, it's got that new car smell, and ten years later, yeah, doesn't work so well, it's dented, it squeaks, it rattles, no new car smell for years, right? Goes from order to disorder. You might have noticed this happening in the mirror, right? You know, it just, it just goes like that. This is fairly easy to understand. If we had a copy of War and Peace, loose leaf copy, you know, in a notebook that we could open, three ring binder, pull out, 1,000 pages, throw them up in the air, they come fluttering down, and we shuffle them back together, what are the odds that every page is in order, right side up and not front to back? Uh, I have a degree in mathematics. I don't even know how to calculate those odds. It's a huge number. There's one way for it to be right. and so many other ways for things to be wrong. And as the Buddha pointed out, frequently things change. And when they change, there's a lot more ways for them to change to be less orderly than more orderly. And we experience this as entropy, if we have a degree in physics, or as dukkha, if we didn't want that to happen. Right? So dukkha happens. Actually, entropy happens, and we experience it as dukkha. So this is the first of these ennobling truths. It's just if you incarnate as a human being, you're going to experience life in a way that you're going to interpret it as dukkha, a bummer. But the Buddha didn't stop there. The second of these ennobling truths is that dukkha arises dependent on craving. Uh, this is actually a really brilliant statement. The Buddha didn't talk about entropy. The Buddha didn't talk about why dukkha arises. He didn't talk about causes of dukkha. What he did was he found a necessary condition for the arising of dukkha. A necessary condition for the lights to be on is that you turn on the light switch, right? The light switch doesn't make the light shine. And it's not a sufficient condition. You need the electrical generating plant to be pumping out electricity. You need all the wires to be intact. You need the bulbs to be working. All right? But a necessary condition for the lights to be on is the light switch be turned on. 
If you want to turn off the lights, if you want the lights to go out, you don't have to blow up the power plant, you don't have to cut the wires, you can just turn off the light switch. Since it's a necessary condition, if you disable the necessary condition, the lights go out. The Buddha was smart enough to seek a necessary condition for the arising of dukkha. And the word he used was tanha, which we translate as craving, though it literally means thirst. But in Pali, there are actually two words that mean thirst. I've forgotten what the other word is, but tanha has a sense of unquenchable thirst. Gotta have it. Absolutely gotta have it. All right? And it's, it's the craving that generates this experience of dukkha. If you're not craving for the world to be different than it is, there's not going to be any dukkha. That's the third of these ennobling truths. This craving actually now takes three major forms. The first one the Buddha talks about is sensual craving. Uh, craving for pleasures of the senses. We like seeing nice things, hearing nice things, tasting nice things, smelling nice things, touching nice things, and having nice mental states, thoughts, emotions, memories. Okay, so we have a tendency to crave this. This is how 21st century America works. They show you a picture of something and they say, see this? You want it, right? Crave it. And then for just a little bit of dead presidents, we'll give it to you, right? We've got a whole culture feeding into this sensual craving. The other two types that the Buddha talked about are craving for becoming and craving for not becoming. And those operate actually on two levels. There's the craving for becoming something in this life, I want to become, whatever, rich and famous. And there's craving for becoming in a future life. When I die, I want to become a deva. Or when I die, I want to come back, that's a becoming, as a person with a Mercedes Benz or whatever, all right? So craving for things to become something in this life or craving to become in the next life. This is what the mainstream spiritual teaching at that time was about, the Brahmanism. Basically, when you die, if you've been good, then you can come back, again become, uh, which is what it literally says. You can become again as a person who's got a better life. And if you've been bad, then when you come again, it might not be so good, all right? And then there's the opposite of bhavatanha, vibhavatanha, craving for not becoming. So in this life, I don't want to become sick. Or sometimes people just don't want to continue living, and they commit suicide, which is the most extreme form of vibhavatanha. But in the next life, maybe you don't want to come back, so that's not becoming. And this is what the Jains were teaching, which were another very prominent spiritual tradition. Their whole idea was to clean it up so you didn't come back. All right? So when you died, you just stayed dead. 
right? So the Buddha is addressing both the becoming and not becoming in this life and also for next life. And he says it doesn't matter whether it's craving for sense pleasures or becoming or not becoming. It's still craving and it doesn't cause dukkha, but it's a necessary condition for the arising of dukkha. Because if you get what you want and then it goes away, you'll experience it as dukkha. And if you don't get what you want, you'll experience it as dukkha. And for the next life, since it's a little risky here to sort of know what's happening in the next life, because you don't have any experience on, on that, yeah, it can be a little worrisome that maybe you won't get what you want. All of this craving leads to dukkha. And then the third noble truth, if you don't want dukkha, don't crave. Now that's a really easy thing for me to say and for the Buddha to say. Don't crave. You won't have any more dukkha. I mean, me telling you that's probably not going to do any good. The Buddha telling you that, you probably still wind up craving. you got to learn how to stop craving. And this is the fourth of these ennobling truths. The eightfold path. The path of practice that leads to the end of dukkha. Or we could say the path of practice that enables you to learn to stop craving. Now, the first thing on that path is samaditi. Sama is usually translated as right. Um, a more appropriate translation would be appropriate, and ditti is view. So we could say right view, or we could say appropriate view. And what is appropriate view? Well, it's very interesting that this would be the first thing on the Eightfold Path. In the Sutta Nipata, a collection of, I think, about 72 suttas in the Kudika Nikaya, the fifth collection of the Buddha's discourses. In book four of that sutta, there are 16 suttas, discourses of the Buddha, that most scholars think are very early in the Buddha's teaching career. And the overriding theme of book four is not holding to fixed views. In other words, keeping an open mind. If you're not fully awakened right now, you're going to have to change your mind. Right? You can't go anyplace else if you don't leave where you are. And so if you know what's going on and you grab hold of that, you've just locked yourself into wherever you are right now. So it's very important on the spiritual path to keep an open mind to not lock into any particular view. Now, this doesn't mean you can't have any view, but whatever view you have, you should hold it lightly, not with a clenched fist. Okay? All views are provisional. The Buddha talks about his teachings being a raft to carry you across the river to the far shore. If you have a raft that you use to get to the far shore... And when you get to the far shore, you lay there clinging to your raft. <laughs> it's not very wise. You've got to let go of the raft to actually get on the shore. So even the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, even the deepest of his teachings, needs to be held lightly. They are skillful means. Now, in other suttas, we find right view defined in other ways. In some suttas, we find right view defined as the Four Noble Truths. 
The Buddha's teachings are holographic. You dig down deeply enough into one teaching and you find the whole of the teachings. We started out talking about the Four Noble Truths. We got to the fourth one, which is the Eightfold Path. The first one there is Right View. We dig into Right View and we find the Four Noble Truths again. The Buddhist teaching comes out linearly because it was oral tradition. You didn't have PowerPoint, right? It was one word after another. But when you're studying the Buddhist teachings, look at it in a broader perspective rather than just one word after another. The deepest suttas on right view describe right view as being basically the teachings on dependent origination. How everything arises dependent on other things. Now, is this a contradiction? Four Noble Truths, dependent origination? Well, no. Actually, as my teacher Ayakema said, the Four Noble Truths are dependent origination in telegram style. Though I think today we have to say Twitter style. Right? A summary of the key points. Right? So, this is right view. Looking at the world basically is realizing that things arise dependent on other things. And in particular, looking at dukkha arising dependent on craving and let it go of the craving. If you want more on dependent origination, I'm teaching a weekend course on that in April at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies. And I'm not going to go into it anymore tonight. You'll have to come on that course to get the details. But, so right view comes first, and the next one is right intention. And what is right intention or appropriate intention? Intentions of renunciation, of non-ill will, and harmlessness. Renunciation. It's a pretty loaded word. Most people's response to hearing renunciation is, get your hands off my stuff. That's our problem. We've got so much stuff. You probably got so much stuff that when it's your birthday and people give you nice presents, you, the first thing you got to do is figure out what to do with them. I mean, your closets are full. You've got artwork on all your walls. I mean, what are you going to do with this new stuff? Some people have so much stuff they can't get their car in the garage, right? Some people got so much stuff, they go down the street to rent another room to put the stuff in that they don't need all the time. We are inundated with stuff. And we live in a culture that says, you got a problem? You need some more stuff, right? And they'll sell it to you for a few dead presidents, right? For a lay person, renunciation means coming to terms with your stuff, Ayakima said that we should go through our closets every six months, and anything we haven't worn, we should give it away to charity. It's not coming back into style. You're not going to lose those pounds. All right? Just keep unburdening yourself. There's a lot of wisdom in rock and roll. One of the wisest sayings in all of rock and roll is, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. All right? Okay, so renunciation is about coming to terms with your stuff. This is really important. There are the precepts, you know, about not taking what's not given. That's the second one. Um, if we use up all of the resources now, 
because we're accumulating so much stuff that there's none left over for future generations. I think the future generations would tend to look on us as taking what was not given, right? We have a serious ecological crisis unfolding at this time. And it's unfolding to a large degree because we're overwhelming ourselves with stuff. We don't need all the stuff that the culture tells us that we need. We got to come to terms with it. I'm not going to give you specifics. I'm going to leave that up to you to figure out. But you want to live as lightly as you possibly can because this is what right intention is about. Now, it's also about non-ill will and harmlessness, which we could also say is about love and compassion. (sighs) Think about it. If the motivation behind all of your actions was about letting go, being loving and being helpful, it'd be pretty cool. If everybody on the planet was operating with those sort of intentions, it'd be a really different place. I wouldn't be so worried about the future at that point. Okay? You can't make everybody else operate like that, but you can make yourself like operate like that. So, yeah, be loving. Be compassionate. And, and let go. There's nothing to get on the spiritual path. There's everything to let go of. There's a Tibetan book called... Uh, Liberation in the Palm of Your Hand. Big, thick book. I read it. It was interesting, but the best part's the title. Because it's true. We do have liberation in the palm of our hand. You can see it. Make a fist. Come on, make a fist. Everybody make a fist. Hold it up in front of your face. Now, you want to see liberation? Look at the palm of your hand. That's how you get there. Right. This is what right intention is about. These first two on the Eightfold Path are the wisdom aspects of the path. The next three are the ethics, the sila. And the first one is right speech. Buddha said that right speech was any speech that wasn't wrong speech. All right, so what's wrong speech? Wrong speech is lying as using harsh or abusive language, as causing division, or gossip and idle chatter. So, if you're on the spiritual path, you're seeking the truth. You can't find the truth if you're telling lies. You've got to dedicate yourself to the truth. It's quite interesting. If you put yourself in a position where you're never going to lie about anything, it sort of cleans up your activities. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. Right? You actually didn't do that because you don't want to have to lie about the fact that you did that. Right? So telling the truth is actually quite important. Now, you don't want to use the truth as a weapon. The Buddha said if you know something that's not true and not useful, don't say it. If you know something that's not true but is useful, don't say it. If you know something that is true but not useful, don't say it. If you know something that's both true and useful, find the right time to say it and say it with a loving heart. 
Okay, so at the time of the Buddha, it was perfectly acceptable to not say anything. I wish that would come back. It would, it would solve a lot of problems, right? So we don't want to use harsh or abusive language. We can get our points across a lot better if people actually find what we're saying pleasant to listen to. We want to be peacemakers, not cause division. And we don't want to engage in gossip or idle chatter. In some of the suttas, the Buddha talks about unedifying conversations, such as about kings, robbers, ministers, armies, dangers, wars. Food, drink, beds, clothing, garlands, perfumes. Uh, Villages, towns, cities, countries, carriages, relatives, heroes, women or men, street or well gossip, talk of the departed, desultory chat, talk of being and not being, speculations about land and sea doesn't leave a lot to talk about. Now, admittedly, this list was given to monks and nuns. But, you know, kings, robbers, ministers, armies, dangers, wars. That's the six o'clock Duca report, right? You've got a machine, you know, at six o'clock you turn it on and they give you the Duca report, right? Today in Afghanistan there was Duca, in the Ukraine there was Duca, in Africa there was Duca. In the U.S. Congress, there was Duca. Right here in Boston, there was Duca. We'll be back with the weather. I mean, you know, that's what you get, a Duca report. All right. Uh, so food, clothing, drink, beds, garlands, perfumes. How many uh, magazines can you find at the newsstand dedicated to those? Um, villages, towns, cities, countries. I actually like National Geographic. Right? But, you know... Uh, carriages. What's that? Car and driver? Uh, relatives. Oh, there's a good topic. Heroes. Celebrities. How much wasted energy is there about following people who are famous for being famous? I mean, this is absolutely absurd. Right? All this celebrity thing. You don't know these people. Why do you care so much about their lives? Weird. Um, men, women, very popular topics. Street and well gossip. Uh, water cooler gossip. Um, doesn't leave a lot. Basically, keep in mind this list. And yeah, there's some people that... Maybe the only way you can relate to them is talking about some of these topics. Um, I had friends at my last job uh, as a computer programmer who were into sports. And, yeah, that was how I could relate to them, was talking about, yeah, Patriots ought to do pretty good this weekend, you know? I mean, Manning's over the hill. It's like, yeah. So if you're having that conversation, at least recognize that the Buddha said it was unedifying and see if you can find an opening to move it to a little higher plane. Okay, this is the key thing about the gossip and idle chatter. You know, pay attention, recognize when you're doing it, move it up if you can. The next one is right action. 
Right action is defined as not killing living beings, not taking what is not given, and not misusing your sexual energy. So we actually have four of the five precepts and two on the Eightfold Path. You might be wondering about uh, the not taking intoxicants. Well, now the Buddha's giving this talk to five guys living on one grain of rice a day. They weren't drinking or smoking dope, right? So that only came along later after he had lay followers. Uh, so at first, there wasn't this talk of the intoxicants, but the Buddha discovered he had to put that in as, along with a bunch of other precepts. But these four are the basic, all right? Use wise speech and don't hurt anybody. That's the whole idea. The fifth one, don't hurt yourself. Hurting yourself will lead you to breaking the other four. And then right livelihood. What is right livelihood? Any livelihood that's not wrong livelihood. So what's wrong livelihood? Any way of making a living that causes you or anyone else to break one of the precepts. Right? So even if you don't drink, if you work in a liquor store, it wouldn't be considered right livelihood. You want to earn your keep by making the world a better place, or at least don't make it a worse place. And you've got to figure out if the way you're earning your living is making the world a better place or a worse place. The last three on the Eightfold Path are usually referred to as the samadhi or concentration aspects. The first of these is right effort. There's really two aspects to that. One is especially appropriate effort. Not trying too hard, not being too lax. There's the story of Sona, who was raised so delicately he had hair on the soles of his feet. Right? And then he became a monk, and he's practicing walking meditation, and his feet are cracking and bleeding and everything, and he's like, I can't do this, I'm going home. And the Buddha says, Sona, don't go home. Did you, did you ever have a lute? Yes. Could you play the lute? Yes. When you tune your lute, did you tighten the strings all the way down? No, venerable sir. Did you loosen them all the way up? No, venerable sir. Well, how did you tune your lute? In the middle, sir. Same with your effort, Sona. In the middle. The phrase I'd like to give you is relaxed diligence. That's how you got to do the spiritual path. you got to be diligent. We in the West are pretty good at being diligent. But you got to do it in a relaxed way. Don't get overly tight. That's not going to work. That's not right effort. Okay, so persistence... But don't get too focused on results or anything else. Just do the practice and let it unfold in its time. Now, another way of looking at right effort is the four great efforts. To make an arisen, unwholesome state of mind go away. To prevent the arising of an unarisen, unwholesome state of mind to make an unarisen, wholesome state of mind arise, and to take any arisen, wholesome state of mind and keep it around and bring it to perfection. So, an example. You're driving on a mass pike, and some idiot cuts you off. And the next thing you know, you're screaming four-letter words at your windshield. An unwholesome state of mind has arisen. Okay? So... 
uh, counteract anger and ill will. Uh, that's supposed to do metta practice. Okay, so may you learn to drive. May you arrive safely at your destination. All right? So you've made the unwholesome state of mind go away. All right? And you continue on the mass pike, and some other idiot cuts you off, and just before you start screaming four-letter words at your windshield, you catch yourself. May you also learn to drive. May you arrive safely at your destination. Okay, so you prevented now the arising of the unwholesome state of mind. But you also made a wholesome state of mind arise. So keep it around. Bring it to perfection. May we all arrive safely at our destinations. May there be no delays, no traffic jams. All right? So these are the four great efforts. This is what we want to work on. It's really helpful for having the right intentions. The seventh on the Eightfold Path is right mindfulness. Right mindfulness is defined as the four establishments of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body. Mindfulness of Vedana. We don't have an English word that really translates Vedana very well. We have the English word valence, but that's not a familiar term. Vedana refers to your initial categorization of a sensory input. And there's three possibilities only, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. The importance of paying attention to this is we tend to run after the pleasant and run away from the unpleasant and ignore the ones that are neither. It's like we arrive here in human form and they give us an instruction manual and you open it up and it says, seek pleasure, avoid pain, live forever. (laughs) Turns out, not the best advice. You know, but these Vedana, although they are very short-lived, that's what our lives are about, going out and getting sources of pleasant Vedana and preventing the arising of sources of unpleasant Vedana. The Buddha says, pay attention to this. If you can pay attention, then you won't get up caught up in the craving. And he goes into detail in this, in the teaching on dependent origination, which I'm not going to go into tonight. But be mindful of your reactions to your sensory input. They're all going to generate Vedana. It's how you relate to the pleasant and the unpleasant that you experience. The third of the establishments of the four foundations of mindfulness is mindfulness of mind states. Know your state of mind. Just keep checking in your state of mind. Happy, sad, confused, deleted, Greedy, aversive, what's going on? When you find an unwholesome state of mind, you can apply the right effort to make it go away. If you find a wholesome state of mind, keep it around, bring it to perfection. This is a really important thing. Just keep checking in with your state of mind. And then the fourth of the four establishments of mindfulness is mindfulness of dharmas which I think could probably best be translated as mindfulness of phenomena. But mindfulness of phenomena, in particular in relation to the Buddha's teachings. In the Satipatthana Sutta, there are five of the teachings that are talked about and how you should be mindful of what's there. The hindrances, the five aggregates, the six senses, the seven factors of awakening, and the Four Noble Truths. And then the eighth on the Eightfold Path is right concentration, sama samadhi. 
Samadhi is usually translated as concentration. I prefer to translate it as indistractability. So sama samadhi would actually be appropriate indistractability. And what is appropriate indistractability? Secluded from sense desires, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, one enters and remains in the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. This is right concentration, appropriate indistractability. I'm not going to go into detail on the jhanas. Um, if you want that, you can buy my book. Check it out from the library or borrow it or whatever. Okay. Um, when the Buddha finished his talk to those five guys, which was different from what I just gave you, he could see that one of those five guys got it, the fellow named Kandanya. And he said, you know, Kandanya, you know, don't you? You know, which in Pali is something like Anya Kandanya. And Kandanya did indeed know. He knew that all that arises also ceases. And he attained the first level of awakening called stream entry. And over the next few weeks, the Buddha continued to teach all of them. And one by one, each of the others attained stream entry. And when the Buddha knew their minds were well prepared, he taught them what we refer to as the second discourse, the discourse on not-self. And at the end of that discourse, they all fully woke up. We're fully enlightened. But we don't have time for that tonight. So, I'm going to open it up for question and answers, but I'm also going to say that this weekend's class on the gradual training is actually a class on the curriculum the Buddha taught to the monks and nuns to implement the Eightfold Path. The gradual training covers all of the pieces of the Eightfold Path, but it's a training. It's how you go about doing all of this stuff. And so this weekend I can promise you another story with two kings, 500 elephants, and over 1,000 monks. And that's just the minor background details. Okay, so... Any questions 